Have you ever tried running in a dream? (laughs) It usually happens when you're trying to get somewhere in a hurry or you're trying to get away from somewhere in a hurry. And usually there's three or four things all going on all at the same time. And you try to run, but it's kind of like you're in a three-legged race. Only all three legs are yours, and they're all in the sack. And, you, you know, and that's an extremely frustrating feeling if you've ever tried to run in a dream. And here's why. Because what you're used to in normal life is asking your legs to carry you somewhere, and they do. And you're able to cover a lot of ground and make tracks in a very short period of time. And now you're in a desperate frenzy to do that, and you find that you just can't. And it's a very frustrating feeling. Well, that's the sentiment that King David has at this portion of his life. He has been, for the past several years now, making great strides. Everything that he had done was prospering. Everything that he set his hand to was successful. But now he finds himself like he's in the middle of a bad dream. Only it's not a dream. It's real. And it's not something that just happened when he fell asleep. It's something that he caused. It's his fault. In our study last week, we saw David, he took a married woman that wasn't his wife. He got her pregnant, and then he had her husband murdered. It was the darkest chapter in David's life that's recorded in Scripture. He was then confronted by Nathan the prophet. He quickly owned his sin and repented of it. And he was as quickly forgiven by God. And then he was given the consequences and he willingly embraced those consequences. They were that most immediately the child that was the byproduct of that adulterous relationship would die. That was more an act of mercy for the child than it was an act of judgment for David. But nevertheless, God said that will happen. God then said that he would bring a sword upon or into David's house. That division would arise from within his own family. And that's going to bring 10 years of living hell for David, as we'll see as we pick up in our text tonight. And then third, God said to David that what you did is that you humbled a man or humiliated a man in secret. But I am going to humiliate you openly and before the sight of this son. That was the sentence that God brought forth upon David because of his actions. So where we resume tonight, we find David in the middle of those years of humiliation that were brought upon him by his choices, uh, his sin with Bathsheba and then in murdering Uriah. For you and me, for the child of God, there are three different stages of the, we'll call it the sin process, so to speak, within our lives. The first is what the Bible calls the sowing stage. And that's the part where you make decisions or take actions or order your lives. And you do that either according to God's word and the warnings that he sets forth. Or you ignore those warnings in that word and you just kind of live however you want. That's what the Bible calls sowing. Then part two, step two, is what the Bible calls reaping. Now, in the spiritual realm, you are going to reap what you sow. There is no way, process, whereby you can stop the producing process. And that works both for the good and the bad. If you sow spiritual things into your life, godly things, and walk according to God's ways, you can't stop the harvest of good things that will come in your life. But conversely, if you ignore God's warning in ways, 
and you sow to the wind, the Bible says that you will reap the whirlwind, the bad that will come. You're going to reap it. Now, what is reaping? Reaping is that you are going to get an uncontrollable amount of what you sowed. If you sow a handful of grain, what you end up with at the other side of it is an incredible amount of grain. So when you sow something, what you get back is an uncontrollable amount of the same thing. And that's what happened in David's life. He ignored God's warning that a king is not to multiply wives, but that he's to have self-control in that arena of sexual desire. And David blew right through that. He took wives at every stage of his life. He ignored that warning and he did not temper or control his sexual passions. He allowed his privilege as a king to deceive himself into thinking that he could indulge in that without any consequences. What David reaped was a situation where he was going to bring destruction upon himself and his family and he lacked the power to say no. He reaped the whirlwind, an uncontrollable amount of the same thing. And thus that reaping took place within his life. Now, we've all experienced that to one degree or another. We hear about it all the time here at the church. We'll hear of someone who maybe has a problem or had a problem at one point with porn. They were doing something with their eyes that their conscience convicted them of and the Bible condemned. And they allowed that to continue and it ended with prostitution. But it happens in every different arena of life. It happens with overspending. It happens with the accumulation of wealth and possessions and stuff. It happens with food, an uncontrolled appetite. It happens with substances like alcohol or drugs. It can happen with anger and uncontrolled emotions. That whatever you sow, if you don't check those things and let the Spirit of God control them, ultimately you will reap an uncontrollable amount of the same thing. And what starts off as seemingly harmless, innocent, or that doesn't affect someone else will ultimately turn around and bring you into a place where you can't control what is coming. The third stage is what we'll call, or what the Bible calls, the harvest. And that is this, is that you now have to live with the consequences of the actions and the reactions. Another way to put it is God's judgment. Now you say, wait a minute, you use the word judgment. That's a red flag word. That word doesn't apply to the child of God, to the Christian. Oh, yes, it does. Now listen, I'm not talking about condemnation. I'm not talking about final judgment where you'll end up in the lake of fire. No, that has been paid for by Christ. No one who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ that is indwelt by the Spirit of God will find themselves in the lake of fire. However... The Bible does say that there is a judgment that exists for the children of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter writes, he says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? So making the distinction between the saved and the unsaved, and yet saying that there is a judgment that exists within the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, the Apostle Paul would write, and he would say, But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. And again, a distinction being made. Not a condemnation unto hell, but there is absolutely a judgment or a sentence called a chastisement that comes from the Lord. 
We see that with David, that God said to David, three things are going to happen because of this sin. First of all, the death of the child. And it says that the Lord struck the child. It was not just the consequences of his action. God intervened and did it. God said, I will bring a sword upon your house and within your house. That wasn't just the natural consequences. That was something that God edicted and that it happened. And then further, it says, God said, I will humiliate you before all Israel and before the Son. It's not going to be natural consequences. This is a sentence. It's what I am doing because of what you did. You say, well, why would God do that? Why would God bring that kind of punishment or declared consequence on the action of the man's sin? Two reasons. First of all, because it's not okay for David to just take a man's wife and murder her husband because he wants her and because he, he has the authority and the power to do it. And then for David to just get away with it with a little slap on the wrist or uh, you know, tisking of the finger from the prophet. It's not okay, David, for you to get away with it because it will embolden you to do it in the future. There must be consequences. Number two is that others may also see it and fear. Now, I don't know about you, but it works for me. Because when I look at what happened in David's life and how those consequences played themselves out in the next 10 years of David's existence, it makes me tremble at the prospect that I might end up in somewhat the same type of scenario and situation. And so God will bring a sentence or a declaration upon an action of disobedience for the sake of teaching me that it's not okay to do that and also warning others that they also might fear. However, now listen, this is my last comment by way of segue before we get into uh, chapter 14. The judgment or the discipline of the Lord is different from every other form of judgment or discipline or punishment that you can receive in this world. And here's the difference. Is that when God takes one of his kids into the woodshed and he has to administer some, you know, education, so to speak, even if that sentence takes a long time for it to carry out, God is the only one that will walk with that child step by step through that entire process and love on them and carry them through while they're going through it. I've had a handful of people in my life that had a a supernatural ability to rebuke me and then love me one half a second later as though there was no issue that happened between us. They had the ability to make me feel like I did nothing wrong at all, even though they just put me in my place. And I've always appreciated that ability that some people have. Well, that's something that comes directly from the Spirit of God. Because he can minister, administer a sentence and bring it to pass, and it hurts. But at the same time, not make you feel like you're going through it alone and say you're going to bear this on your own. God's going to carry David through every one of these things and use them in his life to make him a better man, a better king, and a good example for you and I. But where we find David here is that he's currently wallowing in the harvest that he prepared for himself. So chapter 14 as we continue. It begins with Absalom gone from the scene. He has fled from Jerusalem and he is currently living in in Geshur, which is in Syria, with his grandfather, who was the the, the king of that land. And the chapter begins with a plot by Joab 
who is David's general, to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. Now, this man, Joab, is going to come up a lot in our study tonight and throughout the remainder of, of, of David's ministry in 2 Samuel. He's an interesting man. He's a combination of a shrewd leader, a valiant warrior, a staunch loyalist to David, and a rotten scoundrel. And if you could put all four of those things together in one man, you would get Joab. He's been with David since the very beginning, through all of his years of preparation. He's been careful to protect and preserve and counsel and cover David. He's had moments where he's deeply spiritual and others where not so much. Mostly very loyal to David, except on a few occasions where self-interest interferes. And we see that his philosophy throughout his life is a head for an eye. You take my eye, I'm taking off your head. And that was the rule that Joab uh, more or less lived by within his life. What happens is that he recognizes early on here that David has a desire to have Absalom back. Now, I'm not convinced that that's enough of a reason for Joab to want it too. I think Joab had some political desires for it as well. I believe Joab saw Absalom as a threat. He was a powerful man. He was a gifted man. And being in a powerful place, an enemy camp, and being aligned with the king of an enemy kingdom, Syria, as we saw in our last chapter, I believe Joab, who was the general of Israel's army and a great strategist, thought it's in our best interest to have Absalom close. So here's what he does. He hatches a plan. He finds a woman who's a wise woman, and he sends her to David scripted. She has a story that's not true, but it's designed to move David emotionally. And so he puts words in her mouth and he says, go to King David and tell him this. And so she does. She comes to the king. And she comes and she says, help, O king, which means the governors won't listen and I appeal to the king. And she says these words. She said, I had two sons and they were fighting in the field. And there was no one to separate them. And so one overpowered the other and killed him. And now the avengers of blood want me to give to them my living son to kill him to atone for the blood that he shed. But if they do that, then I'm going to lose the only heir I have because my husband is dead. And if they take him, then my family's light will go out in Israel. So king, help us. Help me. Stop them. Make a declaration and give my exiled son a pardon. Give him a free pass to come back and not have to worry that his life is going to be taken. And David says, go away. I'll think about it. I'll get back to you. And she says, no. And she, she pleads with him. And she says, don't do this. Please help your, your servant. And so David is moved with compassion. And he says, okay, your son will live. I will give the pardon. And then she says, can I say one more thing? She said, give me some assurance that you're going to do this thing by bringing back your son that's exiled, who killed his brother. If you're not going to do it for yourself, then how can I know for a fact that you'll do it for me? And she says a beautiful thing in verse 14 of the chapter. She says, for we must needs die. And are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither does God respect any person. Yet, he does devise means that his banished are not expelled from him. She appeals to David's redemptive experience. And she says, hey, we're like water spilt on the ground. The time that you lose with your son, you can't get it back. And even God provides ways for his expelled to be redeemed and brought back to him problem is with what this woman is asking David to do is she's asking him to pardon Absalom without repentance. 
Well, David does it. And so he sends Joab and, you know, oh, oh, wait, I skipped something very important. He says to the woman, did Joab put you up to this? And she says, yeah, you're a wise king. Go with that one. Yes, she says he did. And, and, and so David, because he said it, he says to Joab, okay, go. So Joab goes to Gesher. He brings Absalom back. But then David says, he can come back, but I don't want to see his face. So he can live in Jerusalem, but I'm not ready to see him yet. Uh, a very interesting thing. He's torn, he's angry, and yet he's willing to forgive Absalom. But at the same time, he's feeling guilty for his own sin and so unable to uh, confront him. So Absalom lives in Jerusalem then for two years without seeing David. And then he gets frustrated. And he says, why was I brought back here? And so he sends for Absalom. I'm sorry, he sends for Joab, but Joab ignores him. And so he sends for Joab again, and Joab ignores him again. And so finally, he sets Joab's field on fire, which is a great way to get someone's attention. And so Joab comes to Absalom and he says, hey, why did you bother bringing me back from Gesher? It would have been better for me to have stayed there than to come here and not see the king's face. And so Joab arranged the meeting. Absalom is brought to David and the reuniting happens in one verse, the last verse of the chapter. It says that Absalom bowed with his face to the ground. He kissed David's ring. David raised the scepter to him, so to speak. And there was a reconciliation that was made there very shallow, very short. And then uh, the narrative goes on. We have three players here in this instance. We have Joab, who's looking out for himself and for David, most likely, mostly himself. We have Absalom, who's only looking out for himself. And we have David, who's torn between wanting to put his fragmented family back together. He's concerned about the kingdom and his relationship with God. And so David is the torn one in this thing. Now, Joab wants Absalom close. He probably assumes there'll be rebellion and war. And David won't fight against him. He knows that David won't fight against Absalom. Now, Absalom is guilty of murder one. He killed in cold blood his brother because he was angry that, you know, his half-brother had raped his uh, blood sister, so to speak. You know, so uh, he's guilty and he's deserving of death. That's the sentence that should come upon Absalom. Now, what the woman said was right. There are means whereby the banished can be restored. However, there's also a proper way for that to take place. And that is through repentance, confession, and contrition. And what she's asking is that he just get a blanket pardon. That there doesn't have to be any contrition or repentance, but you just let him back in. Here's the problem. Absalom, as we will see, is a power-hungry, self-willed man who is willing to murder his own family when he feels it's in his right. Therefore, all this pardon accomplishes is that it makes a distant problem a very close problem. And and Absalom is brought forth. And and the same outcome that Joab feared, he's going to get it, only he's not going to get it from Syria. He's going to get it right from within Jerusalem. So what's the lesson in this? Here's the lesson for you and me. Is that when you and I circumvent the ways of God in order to get what we want, we will always get what we didn't want. That's what happens here in the story. We think to ourselves, well, I can have it now if I borrow. Or we think, I'm going to marry him or her first, and then I'll worry about if they're saved and we're equally yoked later. I'll have it now, and then I'll worry about the method after the fact. 
Or I'm going to give my son or daughter the keys or the money or the plane ticket or whatever, and I'm going to allow them access or privilege without first making sure that they actually are clean and not using anymore or whatever the case might be. Or we heal a broken relationship before there's repentance or before there's contrition or before there's sorrow over the thing just because we want to circumvent the pain of the broken relationship. It happens sometimes. Maybe you're a parent here. Maybe there's someone in your life that's ostracized from you for a reason. I hear sometimes of parents who have to, you know, tell their kids, you got to go. And sometimes the pain of having that child out there is so much that they're willing to overlook the reason and just bring that child back in, even though there hasn't really been a repentance or a turning from that sin. And sometimes that can actually do more harm in the long run than the good. We see that happening here with David. Separation serves a purpose sometimes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul rebuked the church because there was someone in the church who was living in open sin and it was becoming an accepted practice within the church. He was sleeping with his stepmother and the church wasn't doing anything about it. And Paul wrote to them and he said, you need to kick him out. You need to deliver him to Satan so that the sin can be destroyed, that maybe he'll repent and the soul would be saved. But as long as he was allowed to be in the fellowship, in the assembly, then that repentance wasn't happening. The the, the conviction of the spirit wasn't felt. But being out there and experiencing that separation, it would allow the spirit of God to do its work, allow the sin to reap the damage that it reaps, And cause the person to come to their senses, wake up and repent and return. That's what happens. We hear that in the story of the prodigal son with Jesus. When he said the father, or the son, he went out, he spent all that he had. And it was in the pig pen, lusting after the food that the pigs ate, that he woke up and came to his senses. And he repented. And he came back home and there was reconciliation and restitution. And so sometimes it's a divine order of God to have that happen. That would have been good for Absalom, but it doesn't happen that way. The ways of God are very critical when it comes to having the outcomes that we desire. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 says this. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are so essential for us that we obey them and walk in them and not try to circumvent them because we want things to happen faster. God's ways are God's ways for a reason. Now, sometimes it's not black and white. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you say, well, what exactly are God's ways in this circumstance? It's not as cut and dry as just, you know, yes, he can come back or no, he can't or whatever. What do you do then? I believe that God honors faith dependence, and trust in Him. When we desire God's will in a situation, He'll lead us through it and He'll honor it. But when we ignore God and say, well, this is too complicated for you, God, I'll figure it out. I think He takes His hand off and He says, okay, let's see how you can do on this. But He's willing to help. And so we see the ways of God being so important. When we come to chapter 15, we see Absalom's rebellion and David's flight. It says that after this, Absalom prepared 50 men chariots and horses to run before him. 
And he set himself up in the gate of Jerusalem as a judge over the city. He was not appointed so by David, but he took it upon himself to enter into this position. He there plays the statesman. He interferes with those that are coming to the king, and he wins the hearts of the people by slandering David's flawed justice system. It says he steals the hearts of the people. He would kiss their ring. He would identify with them. And he would bring them into the affection of himself. And so he won their allegiance. The people in the kingdom, they loved Absalom. But then it says, after a time, that Absalom asked permission of David to go to Hebron to pay a vow. But we learned that it was a conspiracy. He had 200 men running with him. He had already made arrangements with David's chief counselor, Ahithophel. You'll remember that name and it will come back again. David's chief counselor, chief of intelligence. That throughout all the land of Israel, there were people waiting for the signal. And when the trumpet was blown by Absalom, they were all to shout, God save the king. And it was a usurping of the throne by this man Absalom as he sought to overthrow uh, the authority of his father. And so Absalom reigns in Hebron. And it says that the people increasingly gathered to him and that Ahithophel forsook David, that he joined ranks with Absalom. And when a messenger came and told David what happened, David immediately gathered his household, he gathered his servants, and he flees Jerusalem. And he leaves behind only 10 concubines uh, to keep the house. He's accompanied by three military contingencies, the one led by Joab, the one by Abishai, his brother, and another by a man named Ittai, the Gittite. He's also accompanied by the secret service, the priests, Zadak and Abiathar. But then David sends them home. He says, you guys go back to Israel. And he says, you won't be suspected of any kind of uh, allegiance with me because you serve the Lord. And then you can send intelligence to me and let me know what's going on there. And when David hears that Ahithophel has deserted to Absalom, he prays this prayer. He says, God, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. God's going to honor that prayer. And then David's friend, Hushai, a man named Hushai, the archite, he's another one of David's intelligence gatherers. David sends him back to Jerusalem as well. He says, go to Absalom and declare your allegiance to him. And perhaps you'll be able to defeat the counsel of uh, Ahithophel that, that he gives. And so uh, Hushai goes back. Um, there's arrangements made for the sons of the priests to bring David intelligence. And David is now out of uh, the city. And this is kind of a sad chapter for David. Because here's the king that God had brought for so long through the wilderness and through his afflictions and set him in the palace for so long. And now we see him unwilling to fight against his rebellious son. And so he just ups and he leaves. He leaves the throne, he leaves the city, the palace, all of it behind, and basically takes the position again of being in exile. He yields the authority of the throne to Absalom in this time. There is an unbreakable relationship between heaven and earth. When Jacob was in Bethel, when he was running from his brother Esau, the Bible says that he used a pillow for a rock, and that night he dreamed. When he dreamed, he saw a ladder that spanned between heaven and earth with the angels of God ascending and descending on it. He saw the connection between heaven and earth. He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. A little bit later on, we read of the prophet Elisha in the city of Dothan. 
And there he's threatened by the entire army of the Assyrians. And he says to his servant upon being threatened by so great a multitude, he looks at his servant and he says, hey, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And then he says, Lord, open his eyes. And the servant looks and he sees that the whole mountain and valley is filled with angels, horses and chariots of fire, the heavenly armies of God ready to fight on Elisha's behalf. But they're a connection between heaven and earth. When Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, when you pray, say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, that what is established in heaven will be done on earth. That there's a relationship between the two. When Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle, that portable tent of worship and the articles therein, he was told, see that you make it according to the pattern that was shown to you in the mountain. In other words, Moses saw into the heavenly scene and was told to create something on earth that was a shadow of what he observed in heaven. Again, a connection between what happens in heaven and and what we experience on earth. We see it clearly throughout the book of Revelation that every time there's an action in heaven, a seal broken, a trumpet blown, a bowl poured out, there are responsive actions that take place on earth. There's an unbreakable relationship that happens between heaven and earth. So what's the point? Here's the point. The point is that you can have nothing in reality until you have it in heaven. Until it's been established by God in heaven, you cannot have it on earth. But once it is, it cannot be taken from you unless it's taken from you by God. Now, why is this important and relevant? Because David has been established king by God in heaven. And therefore, David is king on earth and no one can take it from him. Now, Absalom has not been established to be king in heaven. Therefore, No matter how much politicking or positioning or conniving or statesman-like behavior he demonstrates, nothing he does is going to be able to make him king in reality on earth because it doesn't exist in heaven. So David knows that God set him up as king, and so he's not worried about what Absalom has done. Now, God did say to David, the sword will not depart from your house. But God did not say, I will tear the kingdom from you. So what David is doing here by leaving Jerusalem is that he is throwing himself onto the will of God. And Listen, church, that is why the promises of God are so precious to you and I. Because when God makes a promise to one of his kids, that promise is established in heaven. And if that promise is established in heaven, then it cannot be broken no matter what happens on earth. Romans chapter 8, verses 30 and 31 says, Whom he called, them he also justified. Notice it's in the past tense. That in heaven's court, you have been justified. God does not look at you any longer as a sinner. He looks at you as saved. You're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. In other words, God already sees the finished product of what he's producing in your life in the past tense right now because it's already been declared. And then he says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? God is for you in the heavenly realms. Therefore, it doesn't matter what man does to try to remove you from that position that you have before God. You've been put there in the heavenly realm. Therefore, it is yours. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. In heaven, God has declared that he started something in your life and that he's not going to stop. Now, that might be a great comfort to you. I know it is for me because there's so often times I think, God, I'm not worthy that you should work with me for one more day. If I were you, Lord, I would just, I would just kind of just cover me with dust and pretend I never existed. And it would just be a lot easier for you and a lot better for everyone else. But he says, no. In my kingdom, in my book, I have written your name. I've declared my will and I've got a plan. And I never fail in bringing forth my plan. And God's going to bring forth and do in your life what he has promised to do in your life. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a heavenly promise. It can't be taken. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That in your darkest moment, when you feel like God is so far from you that you can't hear his voice, you can't sense his presence, you can't feel his spirit, his promises, his word, his counsels are are like nothing. Your prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling. The Bible says that he is with you always, even to the end of the age. That's yours. It cannot be changed or interrupted. He's with you, whether you feel it or not. Jesus said, I open and no man can shut. And I shut and no man can open. And if God opens a door for you, there's no one that can stop you from moving through it. And if God closes a door for you, Absalom, then you cannot go through it no matter how hard you pry. The Lord says, no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. So no matter what is done, unless God allows it, it cannot be done. That's important. It's important for you and I to recognize. David understood that, and thus he was not afraid to leave. There's another application in this, and that's this. It's a good lesson, a good example that David gives. Here it is. Is that if God lights a fire in your life, let it burn. If God has placed you in a trial or allowed a fire to start, and it hurts and it burns, don't try to remove yourself from it. David does well here by not trying to defend himself, by not taking up arms and defending his place in the palace. He goes with what God wants. God's raised this up. He's going to let it happen. And so therefore, I'm going to give myself to it. That's the best thing that you can do if God brings you into a trial in your life. Let it burn. It might hurt, but God's going to use it. He's going to use it to purify you. He's going to use it to separate wheat from chaff. He's going to use it to give you wisdom and teach you things about people, things about yourself, things about himself, and things about eternity. So let the fire burn no matter what it is. Don't try to fix things. You'll only make it worse. In chapters 16 and 17, David's going to find out who his friends are and who his friends aren't. If you want to know who your friends are, there's one great way to find out. Go through a trial. And you'll learn real quick. The first thing that happens to David while he's in flight, while he's running from Jerusalem, is he's met by this man, Ziba. Remember Ziba? He was the servant of Saul that was put in charge of Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, to keep his lands. Remember back a few chapters? Ziba was kind of put out by that. He he lost in the deal because he had kind of usurped control over all Saul's possessions. And now he became the servant of a crippled man. And so what he does is he capitalizes on the situation and he comes out to David and he brings him a bunch of food and a bunch of donkeys and he speaks real kind and real nice to him. And he says, hey, these are for you while you're out here if they can be of any help at all. And anything I can do for you, David, I'm yours. David says, where's Mephibosheth? And and, and Ziba lies. And he says, well, he saw that you left and 
he said, now God's going to restore to me the house of Israel that belongs to my family. And he, he, he was happy to see you go, David. And so David believes it, and then he gives Ziba everything that had been Mephibosheth. So that was the first thing that happened. Then he's met by a man named Shimei, who was another servant of King Saul, the former king before David. And Shimei was walking alongside of David's company on an adjacent hillside, and he was throwing rocks and cursing David with what later will be called a very grievous curse as he went. He called him a son of hell, the son of the devil, a man of blood, and he hurled rocks at him as he went. He cursed David continually as they went. And Abishai, one of David's men, said, David, do you want me to go over and smite him? I won't have to do it twice. Give me a chance. And David said, no. If God's put it in his heart to curse, let him curse. Maybe God's behind this thing and just, it's all words anyways. What's it going to be? David was a completely broken man at this point. Next we read that Absalom enters Jerusalem and he confronts Hushai. Remember Hushai? He was David's friend that was the spy for David's camp. He was told to declare allegiance to Absalom. Hushai says, God saved the king. And Absalom says, this is a great way to treat your friend. What are you doing here? I know you. You're David's counselor. Why are you here? And Hushai says, no, no, but I am the servant of the king. And if you are the king, then I am your servant. And so Absalom buys into it. He believes it. Hushai covers himself there as a spy. And then Hushai turns to Ahithophel who is David's chief counselor. Now, the Bible says something about Ahithophel. It says that he was so wise that his counsel was like as if someone asked counsel right at the mouth of God. That what he counseled always came to pass just perfectly. And so Absalom turns to Ahithophel and he says, what should I do? And Ahithophel says, here's what you do. First thing, go on the palace top, spread a tent, and go sleep with David's concubines, the ten women he left behind. Then all Israel know that you're hated by David, and it will strengthen the hand of the men that are with you. Absalom quickly obliges to that bit of counsel, and he does it. And then Ahithophel goes on, and he says, Now, let me take 12,000 men, and let us pursue David while he's fearful and tired, And when the men see us coming, they'll abandon David and we will go and only kill him and we'll bring back the other, you know, uh, men that are with him and and it'll be a case closed. We'll go in, we'll kill the spider and you won't have to worry about the web anymore. And so Absalom says, that's good counsel. And the elders of Israel say, that's great counsel. But then he turns to Hushai, David's man. And he says, now you give counsel and tell us what we should do. And so Hushai says, well, the counsel of Ahithophel is not good at this time. You know David. He's a mighty warrior. And you know his men. And right now, they're chafed in their minds. And they're like a mother bear that's been robbed of her cubs. And they're going to dig their heels in and they're going to fight. And you know what David can do. And furthermore, he's an intelligent man. And he's not going to lodge with the rest of the people. He'll be in some pit or in some other city somewhere else separated from them. And you'll lose men in the battle. And the hands of the rest of the people will be weakened when they see that you didn't accomplish your goal and you lost men in the process. But here's what you should do. Wait. And call all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, a hundred thousand men. And you yourself lead them and go into the battle. And then you'll be able to go to every village. And with that many men, you'll be able to uncover every rock. And David won't be able to hide from you. And the people will rally behind you because you're leading them in the battle. 
He appeals to his ego. He appeals to human logic. And Absalom bites it hook, line, and sinker. It says that Absalom and the elders of Israel said, ah, that is better counsel than the counsel of Ahithophel. And so uh, he, he gives it. He goes with Hushai, which buys time for David, and it gives a chance for the spies, the two sons of the priests, to get word back to David to hear what the two councils were and what was going to happen against it. Now, when Ahithophel hears that his council was not heeded, it says that he left, went to his hometown, the place where he was born, he got his affairs in order, and he hung himself. He had enough foresight to see that what Absalom was planning was not going to work. It's too bad he didn't have enough foresight to realize that abandoning David wouldn't work. The Bible talks about two different types of wisdom. There is worldly wisdom, and then there is godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom sees through the eyes of men, and it governs according to the ways of this world. It rules by the race is to the swift and the battle is to the strong. It rules by the golden rule, which is whoever has the gold rules. The problem with worldly wisdom is that it has a very short vanishing point. That is, you can't see too far into the future, even with the best of worldly counsels, because it cannot predict outcomes or control circumstances and how they work out. It can't see into the future. On the other hand, there's godly wisdom. Godly wisdom sees through the lens of Scripture and it governs according to what God says, knowing that what God says cannot fail and it doesn't change. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 23 and 24, God says this, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, and let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. See, with God, all outcomes are predicted and controllable. He can make things happen and he can make things not happen. He knows the end from the beginning and he sees all things and he gives to us the dictates by which we're to govern and order our lives. And when we choose to obey the wisdom of God, it doesn't matter if you're the fastest or the strongest or the richest, God can turn outcomes to work in your favor. Ahithophel was a wise man, but he operated according to the principles of earthly wisdom and it didn't work out for him. See, when you and I lean upon our own strength or our own understanding, the vanishing point is much too close. You can't control how things are going to play out. But when you throw yourself upon the providence and love of God, He is able to navigate you through circumstances and make things work out on your behalf. Now, oftentimes, the way He does that in our lives appears foolish to the world. They mock us. They look at the way we do things. They say, you're just trusting in God. You're walking by faith. You're not planning ahead and, you know, conniving and strategizing for yourself. That's foolish. It's never going to work out for you. But they don't know our God. The world mocks those that live their lives according to God's words, but he's able to predict. Now, listen, when you and I seek to position ourselves in the best interests of our own earthly position without regard to God, we will always fail. But... 
when we seek to position ourselves in the best interest of God's will for our lives, will never fail. And in this, Ahithophel and Judas join hands. They both sought their own best interests, not God's, and neither one of them fared well in the end. They were gifted, they had great potential, but they ended up wasted lives. God help us to believe his word and walk completely in his ways. The other application that we see at this point in in this narrative is this, is that the key to loving people unconditionally, you ready for it? I could write a book. Is knowing that they will put a knife in your back. Now, I know that sounds harsh and maybe even a little bit, you know, like I'm going to turn that into a joke in some way, but it's actually absolutely true. That is the key to loving people unconditionally. It's knowing that they will put a knife in your back. The Bible says that God is love. The Bible says that that love was demonstrated in the person and presence of Jesus Christ. John 13.1 says that having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. He is an, a radical lover of people, and he loves unconditionally. That's his love. But at the same time, we also read of Jesus several times. I'll read this from one from John chapter 2 uh, in verse 23. It says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. See, he loved man unconditionally, but at the same time, he knew what was in man, and he knew what man was ultimately going to do to him. He loved them, but he didn't trust in them because he knew what was in them. And here's how you do that. How do you love people when you know what's in them And you know that ultimately they'll put a knife in your back. Here's how. Is that you don't find satisfaction or find love in human relationships. Your love is completely satisfied and filled by your relationship with the one who will never abandon you or never knife you in the back. And that is God alone. And when you are completely satisfied in your relationship with God and your love meter is at full because of the love he gives to you, then you can be free to love people even though you know that they will put a knife in your back. We talk to a lot of people with relationship problems in the ministry, whether it's marriages or family issues and all the rest. And oftentimes at the root of the issue, people are looking to other people to satisfy a need within their life. And anytime you look to a person to try to satisfy a need within your life, you're always going to come up short. Because people cannot satisfy the needs that you have in your life. Colossians chapter uh, 2, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul said, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And when you find your completeness in the love that God gives you and in the relationship that you can have with Jesus Christ, There is no human relationship that can ever match or measure what God can give you in your relationship with himself. And when that is set right, you can love even the person that would kick you the worst and the hardest while you're down. We see David able uh, to walk in that same kind of love. We'll see it more um, as we go. Now, listen, it still hurts when the knife goes in. 
I don't know if you've ever felt that when someone stabs you in the back. When people love, we love or we trust, they burn us. But when God is your source, that hurt only drives you closer to him. It turns your eyes again and say, oh, Lord, I need more of you. You're the only true and faithful one, and I need to lean completely upon you. And when God is first, you're free to love people without reserve. And here's why. Because you're not loving to be loved, but because you are loved. And that makes all the difference. In chapters 18 and 19, we have the battle and the death of Absalom. We see that Absalom appoints a man named Amasa to be the general of his army. Now, we also read there that Amasa was a man who had an affair with Joab's aunt. And if you know anything about Joab, he lives by the rule, a head for an eye. He's a guy that holds a grudge, you know. We see that David now divides his men into three companies. Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, as we've seen. He desires to go into battle, but they say, no, David, they only want you. They'll all gang up on you. You'll die and we lose. You hide. And David says, all right, but here's what I want. Do me a favor. Deal gently with Absalom for my sake. He asked them to spare the life of the young man Absalom. Well, they go into battle. It says that the men of David prevailed and that Absalom, when he met up with the men of Joab, the men of David, he fled on his donkey. And while he was going... He went through or under the bough of a great oak tree and his hair got tangled up in the branches and the donkey kept running and he was left hanging there suspended between heaven and earth. Now before that, it tells us that Absalom's hair was a point of pride for him. He was an interesting guy, you know. Uh, He was the kind of guy that um, never had to worry about anything that he ate a day in his life, never worked out a day in his life, but yet he had a perfect beach body every day. You know, you ever meet someone like that? Maybe you are someone like that. That's, that is like the most unfair thing on the planet, if that's you, that you can just do nothing and yet you get to... That was Absalom, you know. I have a, a brother-in-law that's like that. George's brother is like that. I mean, he is just like, like a, an art, a piece of art or something. And, and whenever... I, I actually went to a Yankee game with him one time and we were walking through the thing and I felt like Danny DeVito in Twins. You know, uh, literally, like everyone was looking at him like he was Michelangelo or something. And I'm going like, and I'm just like, who are you? You know, this whole thing. It, it, it makes you feel like, you know, that, that was that. Oh, but I have something that he will never have. His sister. <laughs> I went, you know. <laughs> but but that, that was Absalom, you know. He was so good looking. But now... That one point of his pride, what he had, his hair that weighed five pounds a year that he would cut off, gets caught in the thicket and he's hung. He's suspended between heaven and earth. And the men come and they tell Joab. They say, hey, Absalom was there. And Absalom says, hey, did you kill him? And they go, are you nuts? We heard what the king said. We're not going to kill him. And Joab says, if you had killed him, I would give you ten shekels of silver and a shirt. And they said, you could give us a thousand shekels of silver and a shirt. We heard David, our life would be over and you would be the one that would throw us under the bus. And so Joab says, ah, and he grabs three arrows and he goes and he slays Absalom himself. He pierces him through the heart while he's suspended there um, between heaven and earth. And then word is brought back uh, that, that, you know, that he's dead. And it says that Absalom was buried in the temple or the shrine, the monument that he had made for himself. Absalom is the story of wasted potential. 
The scripture is no, there's no shortage of these uh, as we read through the Bible. He was favored, he was loved by David, and yet he wasted his life. He thought himself higher than he should. He had heavenly potential, but he sought earthly means to attain it. His strength became his weakness, and thus he died the way that he lived, suspended between heaven and earth. Too much of heaven uh, to, to, be, to make it on earth, and too much earth to make it uh, in the heavenly realms. And he ended up being buried in the very monument that he made for himself. There's many people that do that today. They think that God owes them something. That they should be more than what they are and they're unthankful for what God is making them in their life. And they think that they're privileged in some way and they never end up making. The, the, the answer is to humble yourself. Well, word now must be brought back to David that Absalom is dead. And so Joab knows that this is a sensitive subject. He chooses a man uh, whose name was Cushai. And he says, Cushai, I want you to go and bring word to David that the battle is over and that Absalom is dead. There was another young man there named Ahimehaz. He was full of zeal. He liked to run. He wanted to be used. And so he said, please, Joab, can I bring the message? And Joab said, no, you don't have the message down, and this is sensitive. This is concerning the king's son. You'll go on another day, but not today. And so he sends Cushai, but Ahimehaz, full of zeal, he says, no, I want to run. I want to go. Please let me go. And Joab says, go, even though he didn't have the message. And so Ahimehaz, a fast runner, outruns Cushai. And the man who's on the outlook for David says, Hey, I see a messenger. He's coming. And his running is like the running of Ahimehaz. David says, Oh, he's a good man. Let's see what he has to say. And so Ahimehaz comes and David says, What's the story? What happened? Is the young man Absalom well? And Ahimehaz says, Well, there was a battle and there was confusion, but I don't really know what happened. And David says, all right, you sit here. And then the messenger says, hey, there's someone else that's coming. And it looks like Cushai. And he says, all right. And so Cushai comes. <laughs> Not as fast as Ahimehaz. Not as well equipped, perhaps, to run. But he had the message. And David said, how was the battle? How fare the men? And tell me about the young man Absalom. And the man said, would to God that all of the enemies of my lord the king were as that young man is. Very sensitive, very gracious. But he gets the fact, the message across to David, that your son is dead. And it says that David began to weep. We'll come back to David's weeping in a minute, but real quick on this. There's a lot of young men, a lot of people that feel like they want to run with a message. They have all the zeal in the world. They have all the energy of youth and life. And they want to run. They want to run for God. But they don't have the message down. Maybe there's some that aren't as gifted, not as seasoned, or, or you know, or seasoned in their abilities, so to speak. But they have experience and they have the message down. God chooses to use them over the person sometimes that's the most gifted or has the best method, so to speak. Ahimehaz was talented, but he didn't have the message down. Sometimes it's important to get the message down and then run with it once you have it the right way. Especially when you're dealing with sensitive things like sin, salvation, repentance, the issues of life. It's important. Well, David weeps. And this weeping became a huge reproach. He wept hard. You read what, uh, what took place there in the palace. He went into a room above the gate where everyone could hear, and he shouted out, Absalom, my son, would to God that I had died, and not you, my son. And it says that the people heard, as they returned from the battle, the king crying this way, and it says that their glory was turned into shame because they thought to themselves, well, what was the point of that? We went out and we defended his life, 
We risked our own. And now he's upset that his enemy died. He would probably be more happy if we were dead and his son were alive. And so they came back quietly and they avoided David and just went to their homes. And Joab caught word of it. And Joab was a faithful man to David. He came to David and he said, wipe your eyes, shut your mouth, and put your right clothes on and get in your right mind. Something like that. I think I crystallized that for you. Look, these men risked their lives for you. And you're up here making them think that they should be ashamed of what they did. And if you don't fix this quickly, then it'll be worse for you than anything else you've ever done in your life because these people will never serve you again. And so David receives that counsel. He cleans himself up and he goes down and he congratulates the men on their victory and he goes on his way. Now, reading between the lines, I think there was some rift there that happened between David and Joab because Joab loses his job. It doesn't say that, but in a minute, he's going to be replaced uh, temporarily, at least. And when we get to, uh, you know, now David comes back uh, to Jerusalem. Amasa, who had been Absalom's general, is now given Joab's job, which is uh, mind-boggling to me, but he's going to lose his life soon because Joab doesn't like him. Uh, Shimei begs for David's forgiveness. The man who cursed, he is given the forgiveness. He's pardoned. Mephibosheth comes, uh, and David finds out the truth about Ziba's lie. Uh, another man, Barzillai, who was kind to David, is invited to Jerusalem, um, but he declines and says, I'm old. Please let me just go home, and you bless my sons. Um, and then the cleanup. Sheba, uh, chapter 21. Um, Sheba, the Benjamite, seeks to lead a new rebellion. David puts the ten concubines into seclusion. Um, David sends Amasa after Sheba, the rebel, but Joab kills him um, and then finishes the job. Uh, they pursue him. Um, and then, uh, you know, the chapter kind of ends and the whole thing is cleaned up. And, you know, there's really not a whole lot uh, there beyond just the logistics of how that, that happened. And so you come to the end of chapter 21. So as we close now, um, and we kind of tie this all together and consider all that we've heard tonight, um, the thought that I have is this, is that no harvest lasts forever. And that's true for both a good harvest and an evil harvest. Last week, after we looked at David's sin with Bathsheba, and we talked about um, Joseph and how he successfully navigated it, and we talked about all the people that failed in that regard, I went home, and um, Georgia said, what did you think of the study? And I said, um, I, said I don't know. I said, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I said, I don't feel good about it. And, and she said, why not? And what I said to her was this. I said, there's two ways to approach a study on David and Bathsheba. I said, there's the front side of it, which is where you warn those uh, that, that are in danger of maybe falling in that particular way, and you warn them about what's going to come. But when you do that, by default, you kind of condemn those that maybe have fallen in that area. And I said, on the other side of it, the other way you can approach it is that you can talk about uh, the grace that God gives if somebody falls in that regard. And when you do that, you give a lot of hope to people that have fallen in that way, but sometimes you might embolden someone who needs to be warned. <laughs> you know? And so I said, I was real good on the front side of it, but I said, I feel like I might have really condemned some people that maybe have fallen in that area or in any area of their life and they're reaping a harvest uh, in, in some way and, and all that. And, and now here's, here's what you need to know. Is that the price that David paid for the sin that he sinned with Bathsheba was truly great. He lost three sons. The one that was born immediately, 
and then Amnon, and then Absalom ultimately as a cost. He lost one daughter, the most beautiful one of all, the gem, the flower of David's uh, existence in, in that regard as any daughter would be, and he lost her to the rape of Amnon. He reaped a ton of family strife and political turmoil. He brought great reproach upon his family and upon his throne and upon his nation, and he lost a lot of authority. He lost the ability to speak into people's lives after he did that. The cost of David's sin was very great. But believe it or not, there was some good that came from it too. David learned God's grace in a way that he never would have learned God's grace had he not fallen into that sin. Now, I will carefully interject the words of Paul here. Shall we then sin that grace might abound? God forbid. The price was high. But we never would have many of the Psalms that we have in the Scripture had it not been for the restoration process as God brought David through the healing that he brought upon himself and upon his family. The sweet psalmist of Israel might never have been the sweet psalmist of Israel. A great king, but less of a psalmist. We learn grace and the grace and the love of God and the healing power of God through David's life. And the testimony of David's trouble has been a warning and a source of protection to many since. There was good that came from it. But here's the good news. I've got great news for you now. Is that by the time we come to the end of chapter 21... David is done reaping the harvest of that season of his life. And it's not over. He still has 10 years left on the throne where he's going to have to deal with garbage because it's the world and he's a king. But no longer is it the sword from within his own house. And no longer is it the consequences of what came because of his sin. He lost 10 years, which is one-fourth of his reign. But there is life after sin in God's restoration. And David's going to experience that. I remember when, my, um, when we were growing up, we had a pool, and my brother got kicked out of the pool for something, you know, which that, that's not a shock. You know, we all have stories like that. But, but what he did after he got kicked out of the pool is he went into the garage and he grabbed a big bag of grass seed and he doused my mother's flower gardens with grass seed because he was angry. You know? <laughs> and everybody knew that he did it, but he denied it until this day. Now we know he did it. He came clean. But I remember for years, that grass would grow in that garden. <laughs> but eventually it stopped. And there's no harvest that lasts forever. You might be here tonight and you feel like you're reaping the harvest of some choices that you made or some things that you did in your life. Understand this. That there are consequences to sin. It is costly. God will work it together for good and he'll walk with you through it. But most importantly, know this, that there is life on the other side of that difficulty, and that God's not done with you, and that where sin abounds, grace truly does abound. Listen, every three-legged race has a finish line, and every bad dream comes to an end. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, as we look at this long segment of David's life. and We feel his pain, but yet we also learn his lessons. And we thank you, Lord, for how you can minister and speak to us through these things that happen to him. And we make it our prayer tonight, Lord, that wherever we are, whether on the front side, perhaps feeling temptation, or whether we're years away even from that point, whether we're reaping the harvest now, or maybe that's long in our distant path, wherever we are right now, Lord, we thank you that your ways are high as the heavens above our ways. And that with you there's great grace and great love. And we would pray, Father, that you would strengthen that walk that we have with you. 
that we would find ourselves complete in Christ Jesus. That the peace that passes understanding and the love that passes knowledge would guard our hearts and our minds. And that there would be nothing else in this world that we would desire more than you. So Father, thank you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for Calvary's cross. Thank you for unconditional love. Thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves and that you're committed to finish what you began. Be with each one of us as we go. May these words continually burn within our hearts that as good seeds sown in fertile soil, Lord, that much fruit would be born from the things that we've heard tonight, that we would leave here more in love with you than we were when we came in, and that we'd experience your presence and your kindness with us, Lord. I pray that you would bless each one here, that they'd find themselves lifted, Lord, restored in your presence, filled with your love, in awe of your person. So be with us, Father. And we thank you so much that we have the privilege of studying your truth and of being called by your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.